That's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah, you should be there. It's pretty moving. Last year was one of the most unforgetful encounters I ever had with the Holy Spirit at that conference. And when I was there, we don't give invitations at the conference, but I was thinking at the end of last year's conference, if they had given an invitation, I'd have been the first one down front. And what I would have said is, God, I'll give my life for this. And at 55 years old, I would have said, God, if you would give me another lifetime, I would double down in this moment. Seeing God's hand move across campuses in this country is one of the most powerful things that I've ever seen in all my life. And the highlight for me this past weekend was my father, who's been a pastor since he was 16. He became a Christian when he was 14, became a pastor when he was 16, got to do the 10-0 prayer for us at the conference at 81. And in his tears, he stood before that ocean of men and women from 14 campuses across North America. The newest one's going to be Michigan State and St. Thomas and University of Florida, Gainesville. And he stood over those over 250 who are responding to the call of God to go to the next place and literally some to the ends of the earth, to university centers in East Asia where there are cities that have over a million college students in some of the cities. And he, in his tears, said, God, thank you for letting me live long enough to see something like this. Wow, that was cool. So I hope that someday you'll have the opportunity to experience that as well. I know the vision of this church is not to just plant this church at the University of Madison, but is to plant a church planting movement in all of Wisconsin to see all of the campuses in this state reached and literally in other places around the world. Well, if you have a Bible today, we're going to be looking at uh, Luke 13, verses 22 through 30, more specifically. And I would invite you to get out and get to that text, and we're going to zero in on that text. But before we do, I think it's so important for us to back up a little bit. Jesus is transitioning at this point in his ministry to the cross. And he began this transition in Luke chapter 9. And Luke chapter 9 is the pivotal chapter in all of the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And at that point, Peter was the one who declared, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He was the first to proclaim his faith as a disciple. And it's in that moment and almost immediately after that moment that Jesus begins to tell his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And you know the argument that ensued with his disciples about that. And right after that, Jesus went up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured. He became white, and he appeared with Moses and Elijah, Moses representing all the law, and Elijah representing all the prophets, and Jesus there with them in discussion, representing that he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets on his way to die in Jerusalem. Verse 51 of Luke chapter 9 says this, when the days were coming to a close for Jesus and he was about to be taken up into heaven, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. And then you get to chapter 10. Now, I considered removing Rob from the network. Just so you know, I wouldn't be able to do that physically, but there are other ways of removing people, right? Right? Because he's teaching you guys 
from the Gospel of Luke and all of the teachers here are leading through the Gospel of Luke and they skipped right over Luke 10 too. <laughs> Nothing said. I listened. The theme verse of our whole network. And so he called me and I think he was in a panic. He said, hey, because he knew I'd be listening to the series. Uh, I left that for you. And I, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it, Luke 10 to... <laughs> Since it's the theme verse of our network, and I want to let you know why it's the theme verse of our network. Jesus, on three occasions, the first was when he was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He told his disciples, lift up your heads and see. Not what you want to see, but what God is doing. When he was sharing the gospel with the Samaritan woman who would literally change her city for the gospel and begin the movement among Samaritans. Even in Luke chapter 9 is the first time he sent out the disciples. But when he did the same thing in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38, he said to his disciples, can you see the fields are white unto harvest? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. And then again in Luke chapter 10, it wasn't just the disciples at this point. It was the 70 who he called together and he sent them out in twos and he said, look. The fields are white under the harvest. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. And then he sent out that group of 70 and twos like sheep among wolves. And they came back rejoicing in all of the work that God did. But guys, we see in all of the scriptures that this is the one thing that Jesus asked his disciples to pray about. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers. And so we've made that our theme verse, and I got a great picture just this week of one of our pastors who we're connected with in Haiti, and he is standing where, there with a 1002 t-shirt, and he's around a bunch of Haitian boys and girls, and they're holding hands at 1002, and they're crying out to God earnestly for him to send laborers into the harvest. Guys, this has become the daily practice of our network since we began, and I hope that you would respond also with us and set your alarm. 10.02 every day, my alarm goes off and sometimes it's obnoxious. And it's either 10.02 in the morning or 10.02 at night. And if you're super spiritual, you can do it both times. But we need to pray, don't we? That the Lord of the harvest would send more and more laborers. In the last two weeks, you plucked out from Luke chapter 11 the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their hypocrisy. And the Pharisees, their hypocrisy was they wanted to be approved by men and they wanted to be seen by men and they did what they did for them in the posture that they were doing what they did for God. But actually, Jesus himself said, you hypocrites, you actually stand at the gate of heaven and you keep other people from going in. And then last week in Luke chapter 12, Rob did a great job talking about our tendency to worry. And he expounded on our worth to God and our need to trust in him. But did you notice in both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those hypocrites, and also in Jesus' admonition to worry that Jesus uses an illustration to illustrate the focus that he wants us to have? Do you remember in the text? Jesus said, hey, hey, what do you think about Sparrows. And they said, well, not much, not much at all. Five of them are sold for a penny. He said, 
And God knows when a sparrow falls. I got my grandson a BB gun. He's six. Uh, it says 10 years and older, but I just want to be that kind of grandpa. And uh, I always told my sons when I got them BB gun, you can shoot sparrows only. Nobody cares about them. Of course, they shot cardinals and doves and every other thing too, blue jays. And, and, but it's horrible for, on their part. I, maybe as a bad dad. But even Jesus said, sparrows have very little value in this world. But don't you know that you're worth, more worth than a sparrow and the hairs on your head are even numbered. And then again, when he's talking about worry, he said, hey guys, what about the ravens? Remember Rob talking about that? You're more valuable than ravens. It's just another bird. And flowers, even though they're beautiful, it's just a flower. You have more value than all of those things. Did you notice in both talking to the Pharisees and in talking to us about our worry, he uses the simple illustration to say, you are of more value than them. But hear what I'm about to say. Those verses were not given to comfort our tendency to worry, nor were they given to make us feel happy in the presence of God. They were given to embolden our faith. Jesus is far more concerned that we live lives of faith and choose to follow him than he is that we live lives free from struggle or worry or pain. He is calling his disciples to be on mission for him, a mission that Jesus himself is about to die for. And hear this, a mission that Jesus is both anxious and afraid. You can read it in the Bible. He was not excited to go to Jerusalem. In fact, he agonized in the garden and sweat tears of blood. Because as a man, he was aware of the pain and suffering that he would definitely go through. And he said to his disciples, don't live for men and don't fear men. And don't worry about your life. Obey God. He said, don't fear what people think about you. What's the worst thing a person could ever do to you? It's in the text. Jesus said, oh, they kill you. He went, Poof. Can you see Jesus doing that? Poof. That's the worst they can do. He said, instead, fear the one who you will stand before after you're dead, who will be the one who determines will you spend eternity either with him in glory or apart from him in an eternal hell. Fear him. Yes, he said, fear him. But Jesus didn't let the realities of fear and anxiety keep him from pursuing his mission of obedience. He continued to the cross. He continued to die. It was necessary. It was the only way to save people from the wrath of God and the guilt of their sin. And hadn't Jesus already his, called his disciples to the same thing? Did you teach Luke chapter 9, verse 23? Didn't Jesus say this? If any man wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life must lose it. And whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will certainly find it. Isn't that what he said? It is absolutely what he said. 
And immediately after teaching on worry and hypocrisy, Luke records that he spoke of Jesus' second coming. We don't have time to talk about that today. Wasn't my assigned text. And he taught about eternal punishment, waiting for those who didn't believe. We won't talk about that today. He warned his disciples that following him would be difficult and painful, not pleasant or comfortable. He said following him would not unite the world. In fact, he said, it will bring hardship and division and sometimes even in your own family. And he said, anyone who followed him for earthly comfort totally misunderstood his purpose and mission. They would be so disappointed in what was about to take place. And I would say, and to those who would refuse to put their faith in Jesus, to those who would follow Jesus for their own personal gain, Jesus himself would give them plenty to worry about and fear. I wonder today about us. Here's what I've discovered about most Christians. They follow God because they want God to follow them. And in fact, if you listen to their prayers, it's as though they are God and God exists with his power to serve them. And I want to say to you, that is not a God. And when you encounter the living and true God, you will fall on your face before him and you'll humble yourself to him and you will say, oh God, have mercy on me. And your cry to God will not be, God, make me comfortable. God, make me richer than Already rich that I am. God, take away all the discomfort of this life. Oh, God, please make me a superhero. No, you will pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then you will pray, here I am, God. What do you want me to do? And that brings us to our text today. Verse 22 of Luke 13. Jesus went through one town and village after another, and he was teaching, and he was making his way to Jerusalem because he was going to go there and die. We already talked about that. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And I love it that it says someone. It wasn't in this case a specific person, like a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe or a lawyer, or a teacher of the law, or a ruler, or some important, prominent people. No, it was just someone in the crowd. In fact, it's so nondescript that it could have been me. It could have been you. It could have been as though we were there listening to and observing the teaching of Jesus, and we had maybe been listening for just a few hours, or maybe we had been listening for days, and maybe we had been some of those who were actually traveling from town to town with Jesus, and this overwhelming question came to our mind, listening to the words of Jesus, because it was as though he was saying, not everybody is saved. And he was just overcome and in the crowd. A nondescript common person like me or you just blurted out. Lord, only a few people going to be saved. A story you're going to get to in Luke 19 is one of my favorite. If you grew up in the church and went to Sunday school, you know all about it. It's Zacchaeus, Right? You know the little song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. 
Yeah, you know it. Just a whole bunch of church people, right? Right? But we don't talk about how vile and how wicked and how horrible Zacchaeus was. He was a traitor to his own people, a worker for the government who extorted God's people, even the poor, to make himself wealthy. And when he ran into God, what did he do with his wealth? He gave half of it away. And he said, anybody are cheated, I will double down and give it back to them. And Jesus said, salvation has come to your house today because Jesus knew that no longer God was that, money was Zacchaeus' God, but Jesus became God and he became a servant in that moment. And it was in that context that Jesus said, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost this guy had asked, but only a few? Because he seemed to hear that only a few. Have you ever been saved from death? Or were you ever lost and then found? Rescued from certain death? Oh, there are all kinds of stories, and I'll let you make your own illustrations, but I just want to tell you one of mine. When I was engaged uh, to be married, my brother and my mother came down to see me, and they drove my, actually, my father-in-law's car because my family didn't have enough money to buy a car good enough to drive six hours. And so, so they actually drove my father-in-law's car, and my brother was driving because I wanted to cuddle with my fiance in the back seat. And my mom and my brother were, were just going back and forth as to the temperature of the car. And my fiance would get cold, and so my mom would turn up the heat, and then my brother would get hot, and so he would turn on the cold. And so there was this argument going on. My brother was actually doinking with the hot and cold and actually driving the car. And I looked up in a two-lane road to see that he was in the wrong way going head on to a semi. And uh, I knew that if you like that, uh, (laughs) that he would uh, freak and we would die. And so I kind of calmly said, Harold, hey, 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 Harold, Harold, that's my brother's name. Um, I I feel sorry for him because he got named that. But anyway, uh, I didn't get his attention because he was so distracted with knobs, but I got my mom's. And so my mom went, hey, like that. And my brother then got the attention and he jerked the wheel like this, which immediately started sliding the car sideways. And then we were going to go off an embankment because we were in Missouri and they have hills there. And so then he swerved it back this way. As the semi went by, we went like this way, like, and he was slamming on the brakes at the same time. And there was another semi coming just like this. And the semi was hopping toward us as we flew off the embankment on the other side of the road. And you know how everything slows up at that moment? And so, you know, I have a fiance there, so I just kind of wrap my body around her head because I heard that you can survive a lot of car accidents, but if you get your head hurt, you're going to die. And, you know, I thought, I'm going to save her at least. So uh, I'm wrapped around her, and I hear my mother as we're careening off into the air, starting to take the nose off down this cliff, my mom says, save us, Jesus! Because she thought we were going to die. And isn't that the way most people are? They, they pray a sincere prayer in that moment. And we all lived, 
apparently. The car didn't do so well. My mom, she was the only one who prayed in that moment. She was the only one who got hurt. She got a cut on her left hand. And the answer, guys, is yeah. Jesus came to save. But it's not just on him. We have to respond. Look what he said, verse 24. He said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and they won't be able. Once the homeowner gets up and he shuts the door. Look what he said, make every effort. Oh, let me do a rob right now. Circle that. (laughs) You guys have a bunch of circles in your Bible. You don't even know why. Circle that. Circle that. Oh, you see the door is narrow? Circle that. (laughs) I love him. But it's actually one word, a Greek word, means to agonize. Do you think Jesus is saying that we're going to get to heaven based on our own effort? Do you think he's saying, well, if you work really hard, work harder and make it really agonizing and then you can get in. Here's what I want to say to you. If salvation is based on your activity or your works, I can guarantee you this. You will not be saved. You will burn in hell. Because what is the gap between the worst person that ever lived and the best person that ever lived? It is razor thin compared to the gap between us, the best of the worst person, and the perfect son of God. And the effort that he was calling them to work was not to, to do more. The effort was to believe. Jesus said in John, this is the work of salvation, to believe in Jesus. One of the craziest verses in all the Bible, Matthew 19, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You know what? It's what? It's called a great what? Great commission. Go into all the nations. <laughs> you know, make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching to observe all that I've commanded you and law I'm with you always. And what does it say before that? It says, Jesus, as he was saying this, called his disciples to him and they were listening to his voice and some of them doubted. Because guys, it's hard to believe. And even John the Baptist, who saw Jesus get baptized, heard the voice of God booming from the sky, saw the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove landing on Jesus, had got a vision from God prior to that happening, that that was going to happen. And then when it happened, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the beginning. And he knew about his cousin, Jesus, who was six months younger than him. Later in Jesus' ministry, he said to Jesus, "Are, are you the one? You know why? Because all of us are people. We get afraid and we worry and we have doubt. But it's not our effort that gets us in. Look what Jesus says, the door is narrow. And what he's talking about, he says, the limitation does not refer to the limiting access, but rather the exclusivity of it. There's one door, one way. Jesus said in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. This exclusive claim of Jesus is both clear and it is very controversial. 
Every world religion claims that Jesus is a way to God. But Jesus said he is the only way. He said there is no other way. You ask, what about the people who died before Jesus? Well, just like we look back in faith and believe in Jesus, they look forward in faith and believed in Jesus. And even in this text, he's going to talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets who clearly are going to be there. But it wasn't rooted in their behavior and their activity. It was rooted in their faith, their faith in what Jesus would do. In God's mercy, he provides a way. And in his justice, he demands that he is the only way. How many sins would you have to commit before you'd be under God's condemnation? Well, let's just reel back in our Bible. To the first story, the perfect man, Adam and Eve. How many sins did they commit before they got cast from the presence of God? Oh, one. We can even do it in Spanish. Uno. And what was that heinous, horrible sin? It was so awful that God said, you're out. And he stationed a beast, an angel of a beast with a sword at the gate saying you can never get back. They ate fruit. Once. As an act of disobedience. Now, how many of you are way beyond that? <laughs> You're out. <clears throat> so, in God's mercy, He provided a way. It's Jesus. And in His justice, He said, I will condemn sin, all sins. I love what John Calvin, he said, he said, since no man is excluded from calling upon God, the gate of salvation is open to all people. There's nothing else to hinder us from entering but our own unbelief. Martin Luther said it like this. It's wonderful news to believe that salvation lies outside of ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian, said it this way. It is not our hold on Christ that saves us. It's Christ. It is not our joy in Christ that saves us. It's Christ. It is not our faith in Christ. Though that is the instrument, it is Christ's blood and Christ's merit that saves. A.W. Tozer said it like this. Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way to God. Salvation is never about what we do. Never has been, never will be. The gospel is good news because it is not connected to what you do. The gospel is good news because it's connected to what Jesus has done. What Jesus did. And notice in this text, Jesus says, Time is limited. Hebrews said, it's appointed unto God once to die, but once the door is shut, once the owner shuts the door, there is no more access. Jesus is coming back. That's why he then began to talk about his second coming. But your life is short. Your clock is ticking. This week, my dad came into my office and he broke down and he just started crying and he doesn't do that very often. And I thought he was going to talk about the conference, but he wasn't talking about the conference. He was talking about his best friend in Bible college. 
who was losing his mind to Alzheimer's. And he was talking about him getting married to his wife. And he was talking about my brother being named after him. And he was talking about all the life that he had lived. And I said to my dad, and what does it seem like? And he said, it seems like day before yesterday. Gone, gone, gone. What is your life? Oh, Jesus might come back in your lifetime. I pray he does. Come today. But if he doesn't, and you get to live to be 100, what is that? Jesus went on, he said, then you, speaking plurally, not just to the individual, will stand outside and knock on a door and you'll say, Lord, open to us. And he will say to you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets and our town. And he'll say, I tell you, I don't know who you are, where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are thrown out, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, to share in the banquet in the kingdom of God. A parallel passage in Matthew says, many will come on that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, do many miracles. Then I will denounce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. We talk way too little about hell. Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. He described it in great detail. Listen to this. He said, it's a place of eternal torment with unquenchable fire where worms never die, where people are in agony, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there is anguish and regret, a place of no regret, outer darkness, a place prepared for Satan and his demons. You're gonna get to chapter 16 very quickly. And Jesus is gonna tell a story about a rich man and Lazarus. Oh, read it carefully. And I write in Bible, an American by the rich man and just about any other person on the face of the earth has Lazarus. And Jesus condemning the rich man said, you had it all in this life. And he had nothing. And now he has it all in the life to come. And you missed the boat. The most unthinkable thing for Jesus to do, knowing about hell, would be to not warn people of its reality. And who goes there? Anyone and everyone who refuses to accept God's way the narrow path, anyone who puts their hope in anything other than Jesus and the gospel, anyone who tries to get in on their own effort rather than just claiming to the cross. We sing a song, and I think the old hymn writers got it so well, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Listen to these lyrics. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this is my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and all my peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I overcome nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll reach my home, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Glory, glory, this I sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise for this I bring, nothing but the blood of Jesus. In our last verse today, note this, Jesus said, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. What? Wait, whoa. (laughs) Can you explain that? Yeah, I, 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 I did. Um, Read Matthew 19. I did. Read Matthew 20 and Mark 10. All there is is Jesus and faith in him. It doesn't matter if you come in at the last moment of the last day of your life like the thief on the cross. Or if you come in and follow him all the days of your life, to be in is glorious because of Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, I'm on a mission for the kingdom. You want to follow me? It'll be hard. Sometimes painful. Sometimes scary. But then you'll sing. Glory, glory, hallelujah. It's worth it to be on mission with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, help us to follow you. Help us to not try to get you to follow us. Thank you for what you did so that we could be saved from the wrath of God, so that we could be restored from the lost relationship that we once had, not because of us, but because of you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.